Hello, everyone, and welcome to Grace. We're so glad you're a part of worship and have joined in to be a part of the community today. When I say credentials, when I use that word, what, what comes to your mind? Perhaps uh, you work at a hospital or a medical center, and maybe you wear around your neck a photo ID. And if anybody questions you, do you really have access to a secured area, you just flash that ID, and man, that's your credential, and you get access to these areas. Or maybe you're in the military, and if so, on your uniform, you have insignia that kind of display for everyone to see, for anyone who needs to know or is interested, what your credentials are, your rank Because in the military, that is signified by bars and stars, right? And so for anyone who questions, this says this person has power and influence. But today, credentials are getting more sophisticated. Have you noticed? I mean, for a long time now, we've had, you know, thumb print readers and eye scanners and electronic chip decoders, even smartphones now, have facial recognition technology on them on the the latest versions of of smartphones. So it's just become a standard thing now. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of credentials. They certainly come in all sorts of shapes and forms. But I believe that the best credentials have always been action, not ID cards. The best credentials have always been behavior, not bars on a uniform. They've been deeds, not degrees on a wall. The best credentials are results, not fancy references or resumes. And that's what makes Jesus such an effective leader. He always walked the talk. Yeah, he bore the title Son of God, but he always backed that up with his actions. And he shows through his credentials that he is certainly worthy of our devotion and our following him. Now today, we look in a wonderful section in Luke chapter 4 and a little bit in Luke 5 And I want us to discover today several different credentials that Christ possessed that should endear him to us more than ever. First of all, Christ spoke clearly with authority. Join with me here if you have your Bible open or maybe you want to follow along on the screen, your portable device, however you read Scripture. Let's start here in verse 31 of Luke chapter 4. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. The word amazed, translated here, means this wide-eyed wonder. We'd say today their jaws dropped. Their mouths were open with amazement at what they were hearing. Now, I've noticed around the church today People try to kind of bifurcate Christianity into either a head thing or a heart thing. Have you seen this? You'll hear some passionate disciple say, you know, it's all about the theology, really, when you boil it all down. 
you got to have the right doctrines. you got to believe all the right things, and they've got their list of what those need to be. And that's what a real disciple's about. And somebody else will say, dude, you got it all wrong. That's not it. Oh, yeah, that has its place. But it's really a heart thing. It's about having Jesus in your heart and having your emotions connected to that and hooked into that so that you're passionately living for him every day. Well, which is it? Jesus taught it's not either or, it's both and more. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is a holistic thing. God deserves every part of us. Now, the thing that's so striking to me about this message here is that Jesus, and this was so refreshing to the people in his day who were accustomed to listening to rabbis, and they, at first, just saw Jesus as another rabbi. But what was so refreshing is that he appealed to no authority outside himself. It was common for rabbis then and now to quote other well-known respected rabbis. They'd say, well, according to Rabbi Muckety Muck in the fourth century, and then they would quote him. And that was their authority. But Jesus simply said, I say to you. He was appealing to no authority outside of himself. He himself was the authority. We quote Time Magazine today, the Wall Street Journal, some respected professor or an expert in some area in order to give our words more credence and be more persuasive. But Jesus had all the authority and he still does. He made one of the most striking statements just before he ascended to the right hand of his father. He said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, why is that relevant to you today? Because particularly if you're on an exploration of faith, if you're wondering where you're going to land in your journey, you need to understand that becoming a Christ follower means that he becomes your authority. Oh, I know we live in a culture where there's a sort of a war going on for who's in charge. You'll hear a common mantra. It started decades ago. It's certainly here today. Question authority. And people wonder, who has the authority to determine when life really begins and when it should rightly end? Who has the authority to determine in moral values what's appropriate and what's not? What's right and what's wrong? What's true and what's not true? That's the big issue of our day. But Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And if you choose by God's grace, to be a follower of him, what you're saying is, Jesus is going to be my authority. Do you understand that as disciples? You're saying, if Jesus spoke to an issue, that becomes my guiding principle. And his words and his values and his beliefs become the trump card, if you will, in your life. And that's the thing that guides you in your belief and behavior. Last Sunday evening, Debbie and I had a marvelous time. We got to visit Primetime. That's our great student ministry event that's held at Half Moon, at our Half Moon campus. And we were a part of a panel discussion there about sex. Oh, man, it was wonderful. 
That was one of the most genuine, raw, honest, and just uh, truthful kinds of discussions that I've been a part of in a long, long time. We enjoyed ourselves immensely, had a great time. And I want to tell you, the teenagers of Grace Fellowship are so impressive. They came up with some awesome questions about sexuality and relationships, and we had a great time dialoguing. And we were there with Chad and Nikki Bryan, who were hosting the event, and over on our far right was Richard Hazelton and his girlfriend Lauren, and over to our far left was Ryan Yaman and his girlfriend Rosa, and we just had a blast discussing these issues. But you know what you run into real quick? Whenever you're asking questions like, what actually constitutes sex? What should be appropriate sexual boundaries in a relationship? How do I know I'm in a healthy relationship as opposed to an unhealthy one? You know what you run into right away when you begin to ask those questions? Well, before I can answer that, I need to know what is your authority? What is your authority? And if you're a Jesus follower, well, the Bible and particularly Jesus' words are your authority. But hey, if you're not, then it begs the question, what is your authority? And whoever you are today, I'm telling you, that's a question you need to decide in your life. Because it's going to make all the difference in the world as you try to navigate not only sexuality and relationships, but every other issue of life. Who is my authority? Jesus' message was crystal clear and with authority. The second credential I want you to see here in this passage is that Christ engaged in battle with spiritual forces. With your Bible open there, let's keep reading. Verse 33, in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, ha, now let me pause, that little word, ha, kind of a strange word in our culture, in Greek, in the Greek text, it's two little Greek letters. Epsilon alpha is all it is, and it has some breathing marks on it. It would be pronounced with sort of an H sound, ha, like that. And it's really an interjection of dismay. The demon is speaking, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what is this teaching? With authority, now by the way, in that culture, when a person was possessed by a demon, it was considered a hopeless situation. And even though exorcists and magicians of various kinds would try their own ways to deal with it, and some of the ways they dealt with it are actually kind of funny and humorous, but they, they tried to deal with it, but it was considered hopeless. And so no wonder they're shocked when Jesus, with just a simple command, deals with this they say with authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out and the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area demon possession 
is when one or more demons take control of a person and begin to dominate their life. It could happen to the person because they intentionally invite it, or it could happen rather unwittingly as they provide a portal, some opening through persistent disobedience or dabbling in the occult in some way, and it provides a portal for this activity. Now, I do not personally believe that genuine Christians can be possessed, but I have come to believe through many years and lots of experiences that genuine Christians can be strongly oppressed to the point that one or more demons are actually dominating their life. The prince of this world, Satan, and his angels work in the lives of people to wreak havoc. I don't want to spook anyone, but some of you may be dealing with strong demonic oppression through perpetual sin patterns and opening the door for Satan's work in your life. If that's you, I don't want you to despair. There is so much hope in Jesus. Charles Allen once wrote, when you say a situation is hopeless, you're slamming the door in God's face. And he's right. Jesus Christ has authority over all the power of the enemy. I urge you to go to him for help. I'm a part of a monthly pastor's group that I've been a part of for 20 years. Another pastor who's since moved away. And I started that group 20 years ago or so. And boy, it is a wonderful felt. Once a month, the first Tuesday of the month, we get together. If I named the pastors who are part of that, you would know most or all of them probably, many of you. And just several months ago, one of the pastors in our group is one of the sanest men I know, just an amazing father and husband, wonderful guy, fellow pastor in the area. I'll not name him just so his Facebook doesn't blow up, okay? I'll just protect his anonymity. But he shared with us, with utter sincerity, this is a man who's brilliant, he has a doctoral degree, he's this, one of the sanest individuals I know. He shared with us how in the span of one month, he had three encounters with individuals where he and another pastor dealt with them, where demons were speaking out of them. It's right here in the capital region, just a number of months ago. And he talked about, he said, Rex, I didn't ask for this. In fact, I don't want this. I don't want to be known for this. But he said, it's changed the way I read passages like we're reading today. He said that now they make so much more sense as we had these demons. Literally, we were dealing with them as they were speaking through these people. And they have ranks. And so we deal with the highest ranking demon first and then go right down the line of rank until the person was getting deliverance. Folks, I want to tell you, if you were steeped in Western humanism, and that's just about all of us, I know you may smirk and go, this is just so much hocus pocus. I don't, isn't this just a primitive way of describing things we don't understand? Isn't that what they did? They saw some malady that today we know about, we've given a name to, and they just called it a demon. Isn't that all that this really is? No. This is not multiple personality disorder, dissociative personality disorder, or any other number of intense neuroses. 
The APA may never acknowledge it as a category, but some of the most respected men and women I know who deal with individuals in counseling acknowledge there are often the presence of unseen forces and you have no explanation for their power over the person other than they are there and they are real. We need the unbridled power of Jesus in our lives today just as much as they did then. And yet I know many people, because we've been steeped in our universities and in our, just in our Western world, we're taught that, no, nah, that, that's just, that, that's not real. Many people will continue to be skeptical. Phil Yancey points out, although faith may produce miracles, miracles do not necessarily produce faith. He says, Jesus never met a disease he could not cure. A birth defect he could not reverse. A demon he could not exercise. But he did meet skeptics he could not convince. And sinners he could not convert. For the forgiveness of sins requires an act of will on the receiver's part. And some who heard Jesus' strongest words about grace and forgiveness turned away unrepentant. If you have deep and abiding issues, pressures, frustrations in your life, maybe a family member who dabbles with the occult, maybe you struggle with intense drug abuse, which is a very natural portal for the entry of this kind of activity, I urge you, if you are a Christian, to understand that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And Christ still has authority over all the demons that would try to pester and destroy us today. The third credential I want you to see is that Christ humbly handled his growing popularity. Now, I don't know how you feel as you read this, but I picture a locomotive. Jesus' ministry is like a locomotive leaving the station, picking up steam, more and more speed, more and more success. Let's pick up in verse 38. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. By the way, you know, the human author of this gospel we're studying is Luke. And as we told you, he is a medical doctor, so he has a lot of technical knowledge, which shows up every now and this is one of the places it shows up. If you examine the Greek parallel text in Matthew and Mark, which also include this story, John does not include this story in his gospel. But if you examine the parallel text, this technical term is not used by Matthew or Mark. He uses the phrase here, Pareto megalo. This is a mega fever. That was a technical term used by medical doctors in the day, one that Luke understood well. And they asked Jesus to help her. So he bit over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out, came out of many people shouting, You're the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. Wow, what a day, huh? 
He starts off in the synagogue in the morning, casting out demons. After the service, he goes to Simon's house where he heals a Pareto Megalo, this intense fever that Simon's mother-in-law has. But then the train just keeps on moving, baby. There's no rest for the weary. Even as the sun is setting, it's getting dark, and people continue to show up at the house, and the healing lines are getting longer and longer and longer. But I want you to notice here what happens the very next morning. After an intense day like that, where his popularity is rising, Verse 42, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. Now, later in Luke 5, we're going to find out what Jesus was doing in that solitary place. He was praying. In fact, he prayed all night, the night before he chose his apostles. Now, think of that. Let wrap your mind around that for a moment. Here's God in the flesh, and yet he prioritized prayer enough that he got away from the bustle of the crowd, successful as he was, and he sought his heavenly Father in solitude and silence. Jesus had a sense of humility. He would regularly, as you read the Gospels, get away from the crowds to recalibrate with solitude and silence. What a foreign concept in our culture, huh? Solitude and prayer? Pastor Rex, that's for monks. We don't need that. We don't have time for that. Back in the late 1800s, if somebody in a town missed a stagecoach, you know what they did? They would just kind of chill until the next one came along a couple of days later. Today, if we miss one pane in a revolving door, it ticks us off. We missed our opportunity to get ahead of that other guy over there and to be there a split second earlier. We live frenetic lives. So I'm going to give you a little test today. I came across this years ago, and I want you to know before you take it, I've taken it, and I flunked. Just want to take the pressure off, okay? I took it. I utterly flunked this test. But I want to see how... You would do. You don't need a pen and paper. You don't need anything to write with. I just want you to keep up with it on your fingers, if you will, okay? So just your fingers. Every yes answer. Only keep up with the yes answers, if this is true of you. Are you ready? Let's take the test. Number one, have you ever eaten a meal while you're driving? Now, if you've got little kids, you better answer yes to that. You've probably got petrified French fries in your minivan, right? 50 years ago, this was unheard of, but it is a, almost a daily experience for many people these days. Number two, how many of you have ever changed clothes while driving somewhere? I've done that many times. You are in more casual clothes. You need to be to a funeral or someplace where you need a suit on. Change in the car. Don't have time. So if I ever have an accident and I've got like one shoe on and one pant leg on... Would you please explain that to the officer, okay? Have you ever hung up on someone while they're still saying goodbye to you? <coughs> Number four, are you keeping up with these on your fingers? While driving, have you ever cut through a gas station to get away from a red light? You know, just to keep moving. Well, let me tell you how you can make this look official 
if you pull up and look at the gas prices and go, oh, too high, too high, and just mouth that a couple of times and then drive right on, you'll, you'll be okay. This is bad. You're elbowing each other. I can see that you've done this before. Number five, have you ever parked in a fire lane or an inappropriate spot? Don't raise your hand. Just move your fingers and keep up with these. How many of you, your normal tendency when you see a yellow light is to accelerate? That's me. Got to get through this thing before it turns. Have you ever read the cliff notes for a book report instead of reading the entire book? Have you ever thought during a sermon, how much longer is he going to go? Huh? Yeah. Number nine, how many of you have ever put your makeup on or tied a necktie while driving to church? Now, if you've done both, we may need to have a conversation after the service. And finally, number 10, how many of you have children who think their first name is either come on, hurry, or let's move it? Right? Now, I scored 10 out of 10. I'm not proud of that, but it shows me I've got a long way to go when it comes to pulling away from the rat race and getting some solitude. Can we have a moment of honesty here? We're drawn to hurry. We wear it like a badge of honor because it makes us feel important. We could say to somebody, oh, I'm just so busy. It makes us feel important. Like we got all these things going on. It keeps the adrenaline pumping, and we're consumed with it. Henry Nouwen has been a favorite author through many years. And in his book, The Way of the Heart, he says solitude is the place where ministry and spirituality embrace each other. It becomes like a spiritual property for which we can compete on the free market of spiritual goods. We also think of solitude as a station where we can recharge our batteries or as a corner of the boxing ring. In short, we think of solitude as a place where we gather new strength to continue the ongoing competition of life. Now, I want you to listen to this next phrase. This is a phrase that many of us need to hear. Now in writes, The goal of our life is not people, it is God. Only with him shall we find the rest that we seek. Here's what I believe about you. Very few of you Christ followers will ever want to renounce your relationship with Jesus. But here's what I'm concerned about, that you will stay so busy and hectic that you'll settle for a mediocre version of a relationship with Jesus. And you'll just skim through life instead of really living life deeply. That's what I'm concerned about for us. That we'll just skim through life rather than drinking deeply from the life, the abundance that Jesus gives. John Knox was a powerful preacher and a great man of God He was also known as a fervent prayer warrior. Once he had been called to stand before Mary, Queen of Scots, and you history buffs may know what her nickname was. She was often called Bloody Mary because 
She had had so many people executed, sometimes almost on an emotional whim. And here's John Knox, the great Scottish preacher, going to stand before Mary, Queen of Scots. And a friend said, hey, you be careful. You know her reputation. You be very cautious. And John Knox replied, why should I fear 10 minutes with the queen when I just spent one hour with my king? Many of the fears that incarcerate you, dear friend, day by day would melt away if you spent a little more time with your king. Jesus regularly chose private prayer over public ministry. And there's a powerful lesson we need to learn from that today. The fourth credential I see in this passage is that Christ clearly understood his ministry. Verse 43, but he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that's why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? He knew why he was here. He knew his ministry. He knew his mission. He knew what it was about. And he was focused like a laser on it. Hey, if God were to ask you, why are you here? How would you respond? I hope we'd say, well, Lord, Lord, it's to glorify you. It's for you to use us to help make more and better disciples, you know, to introduce people to Jesus and, and help them become better acquainted until they grow deeper and deeper until finally they have a truly Christ-centered life. That's, that's why we're on the planet. Peter Drucker, the management guru, in his wonderful book, The Effective Executive, encourages executives in corporations to ask their peers and colleagues, along with the people they supervise, what is your unique contribution to this company? What is your unique contribution? What is your unique contribution to the kingdom? Do you know? I'm telling you, life comes alive when you find that out. You begin to live life with a capital L. There's a spring in your step and a joy in your soul and a peace in your heart that's unmistakable. You want to bound out of bed every day because you've got a purpose for living and you know clearly what it is. What would that be for you? Is it your love? Is it your sacrificial service? Is it your generosity? Is it putting your talents to work? For kingdom purposes, God made you for a purpose. Jesus was focused like a laser on his purpose. Pray to God that we would know ours and live it every day. But as we read on here, it's interesting. In chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we see another aspect of Jesus' ministry being introduced here. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Now, by the way, these boats belonged to Andrew and Simon Peter. Those were brothers. They had one of the boats. And they had apparently were business partners. People often did this because 
just one family couldn't afford all the overhead needed to go into a business like this. So they were in business with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down. Notice here's Jesus sitting down again to teach, which was his custom. And he taught the people from the boat. And so the boat here is providing a sort of natural amphitheater as his voice is somewhat amplified over the water as he speaks to the people on the shore. There's one final credential that I want you to consider about Christ, and that is that Christ transformed the unlikely. What we're about to read here is him giving one more miracle that made a dramatic difference not only in Simon Peter's life in particular, but also in these other disciples. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night, haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. Simon Peter saw this. He fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. By the way, that's a common reaction whenever a person in Scripture realizes they're in the presence of holiness. Read Isaiah 6. Read Jeremiah's call. Read other calls of great men and women of God in the Bible. And this is a frequent reaction when you realize the holiness of God. Go away from me. I, I'm not fit for this. I'm an me- unclean man. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Now listen. Obedience is faith in action. Obedience is faith in action. Have you ever wondered what would have happened if Simon and his companions here had not obeyed Jesus' instruction on this fishing adventure? They would have missed out on one of the greatest blessings of their lives. And then he says to this motley crew, You come follow me. From now on, you're going to catch people instead of fish. He saw the amazing possibilities in these ordinary people. And verse 11 to me is just pregnant with meaning, and we'll stop there today. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Are you kidding me? Left everything? Whoa, 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 wait a minute. This is their livelihood. This is the equivalent of winning the lottery. This is a windfall profit. It's sitting right there, a dream come true, and they just walked away and left it. Why? 
because they were leaving an opportunity to change hooks. And Jesus said, I want you to come and start changing hearts. Dr. Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, once said, and I quote, most people never see a miracle because they never tackle anything that takes a miracle. Most people never see a miracle because they never tackle anything that takes a miracle. Are you tackling anything in your life right now that if God doesn't come through, you cannot pull it off? I think God wants us to think a little bigger sometimes and risk a little more, but obedience is faith in action, and Jesus has the credentials worthy of following. If Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors said to me, hey, Rex, I want to give you a few tips on how you can improve your jump shot, I would have my full attention. If Bill Gates of Microsoft said, Rex, hey, I've got a few insights here of how you can use your computer more effectively and be more effective day by day, I would listen and learn. If Stephen Covey, the management guru, said, hey, Rex, I've got a few ideas here, some principles I want to share on how you can be better with administration and management, I would take copious notes. You know why? Because those guys have the credentials. What do you think of when you think of credentials? It is true that credentials come in all kinds of shapes and forms, but I want to say it again in closing. The best credentials are always action, not ID cards. Behavior, not bars on a uniform. Deeds, not degrees that decorate a wall. Results not references on a resume. And if that is true, and it is, Jesus passed the credentials test with flying colors. But are you still listening to me? He added one more credential. He walked out of his own grave. Wow. Someone with credentials like that is worth our listening to and worth our following. Lord, thank you for this amazing passage from your word. It grips us. It shows us, Lord, your authority and how you spoke so clearly as you confronted these demonic powers, as you taught the people, as you dealt with sickness and disease, and as you kept your focus day after day, and as you recalibrated your soul through solitude and silence and prayer, as you kept your focus on your mission, and as you transformed the unlikely, Lord, you are worthy of all of our devotion. We worship you, we follow you, and we yield to your authority as your followers. You were the only one who walked out of the grave and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.